0: Tonight's class is dedicated in honor of the birth of a new baby boy to Shandy and Shmolly Becker, graciously dedicated by their friends David and Ida Schattenstein. Tonight, we are going to explore what at the time I'm sure did not appear to be a very significant event, but yet. From the perspective of the rabbis, of the sages of the time, it was a monumental event which occurs during one of the last, if not the last, special ceremony of HaKel during the Second Temple era. And a brief introduction is necessary. In this week's portion, Vayelech. Moshe Rabbeinu Moses instructs the Jewish people that after every seven-year cycle, in the beginning of the eighth year, all of the Jewish people should gather together in Jerusalem, in the place of the Temple, in the place of the Beis Hamikdash. Every member of the Jewish nation would come together during the Festival of Sukkot. In the beginning of the 8th year, following the 7 year cycle, the 7th year being Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and a few weeks later, during the festival of Sukkos, the entire nation would come together and the King of Israel would read selected portions from a Sefer Torah, from a Torah scroll, to the entire congregation in the courtyard, in the Azorah of the Beis Hamikdash of the Holy Temple. This was called Hakel. It was the only time, once in seven years, that the entire nation of Israel. The Rambam, Maimonides, and Hilchis Hagig in the Lord, compares it to Maimed Har Sinai. According to the Rambam, this was a reenactment on some level of the Sinai experience, where all the Jewish people stood together at Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant with Hashem, with God. Now, we come to a story that happened during one of the last hakel ceremonies in the second temple, in the second Beis HaMikdash. Open up your curriculum to source number one. Right below the video you have a curriculum. It's the Mishnah in tractate Saita daf mem Aleph amed Aleph 41.1 Zag the Mishnah Parshas HaMelech Keitzat Meitsoi Yom Tevarishin Shalchag Bishmini B'Mitsoi Yishviyiz On the evening, following the first day of the holiday of Sukkot, on the eighth year, at the end of the Shemitah year, at the end of the seventh year, they would build a platform of wood in the temple courtyard, and the king of the Jewish people would sit on the platform. The chazan haknesses neitel sefer Torah ve'noisnal roisha knesses roisha knesses noisnal azgan azgan noisnal koyin gadol koyin gadol noisnal amelch va'amelch oimidu makabel ve'kayir ve'yerusha. The assistant of the synagogue would take a Torah scroll, a sefer and give it to the head of the synagogue, who would give it to the deputy high priest, who would give it to the high priest, who would then give it to the king. The king would stand up and accept the Sefer Torah from the high priest, from the Kohen Gadol, and then would sit down and read certain sections, certain portions of the Sefer Torah. And the Mishnah now tells us this story. Agrifas Hamelech Ahmad Vekibail, King Agrippa, Agrippas, stood up to receive the Sefer Torah, but then read the Sefer Torah while standing. Agrippa did not sit down. He remained standing while reading the Torah. And the sages praised him. of the There were different portions that the king would read. The king would read from the beginning of Devorim Deuteronomy till on Shema then he would read Shema. Then he would read Im Shemaya. He would read two portions about giving tithes, charity, miser. In Parshas Re'ei, Aser Ta Aser. In Parshas Kisovay, Lo'isuchala Aser. The king would read Brachus and Klolos, the covenant of blessings and curses in Parshas Kisovay. And would also read Parshas HaMelech. The portion which tells the Jewish people in Parsha Shoftim that when they come to the land of Israel they should appoint a king and the king ought to be humble and God-fearing. When Agrippas came to that verse in Parsha Shoftim where it says You cannot appoint upon yourself a non-Jewish king, zol of Dmoyas. He began weeping. Tears began streaming from his eyes. Because Agrippas wasn't Jewish. Amrulai, um, they told them, Altisari Agriffus. Don't fear Agrippa. Achinu ata, Achinu You are our brother. You are our brother. And this concludes the story in that Mishnah. In order to appreciate the event, we must have historical context who was Agrippus HaMelech who was King Agrippa the truth is there were two Agrippas who served as kings in Judea briefly one of the most famous personalities leaders, kings during the second temple era was Hurdus HaMelech known as Herod the Great or King Herod who was Hurdus Hurdus was the son of a man named Antipater. They came from Edom. They were Edoimim. Edoim was a country on the south, southeastern side of the land of Israel. During the reign of the Hashmanoim, during the Second Temple era, many of the Edomites were coerced to convert to the Jewish religion, which the sages were unhappy about but the Chashmanoi leaders had that strategy and had that policy at certain times. The Edoimim became servants of the Jewish people, and halachically, legally, they had the status of being an Evet K'naini. An Evet K'naini is when a non-Jew became a servant to a Jew, he did not have the full status of being a Jew, he was a semi-Jew, he was obligated to get circumcised, and to do some mitzvahs like the Jew, but was not considered a full-fledged do he had the status of an Evet Knaini. And this was the status of the Edom. Antipater, the father of Herod, who was an Edom, was a brilliant politician and a very shrewd and mischievous man. He was already appointed by the king Alexander Yanai, one of the Hashmanoi kings, Alexander Janius. Alexander Yanai was a son of Yochanan, the Hashmanoi king. Yochanan was a son of Shimon who was one of the five sons of Matisyo who staged a revolt together with his five sons with Yehuda HaMakabi and his four brothers against the Syrian Greeks who captured Jerusalem, who captured the Beis HaMikdash and who issued forth horrific decrees with the intention to eliminate and annihilate the Jewish religion. The Chashmanoi family led by their father Matisyo and the brother Yehuda HaMakabi led a three-year guerrilla war against the Greek Syrians and although they were outnumbered in a disproportionate fashion they were victorious they were triumphant, they liberated Jerusalem they liberated the Beis Hamikdash we celebrate Hanukkah one of the brothers, one of the five brothers was Shimon, a son of Matasyo Shimon's son was Yochanan Yochanan's son was Alexander Yana his Greek name is Alexander Janius Alexander Yana appointed Antipater the Edomite and gave him an important political position Alexander Yanai died and was succeeded by his wife Shlomzi and Amalka Shlomzi and the Queen who was actually a very gracious person a gracious human being the rabbis and the sages respected her tremendously as she respected them when Shlomzi and Amalka died she left two sons Aristobulus and Horkinus. Hyrcanus was not a very strong character. He was a soft character. He was the goddel, but he led Aris, he let Aristobulus take over the power, take over the show. Antipater, who had an important political position, he sided and advised and guided Horcanus, one of the sons of Alexander Yanai and Shlomzi and Amalka he instigated Hyrcanus to declare war against his brother Aristobulus. And a major war broke out between the two brothers, the two sons of Alexander Janius, Alexander Yanni and Shlomzi and Amalke. It was vicious, it was bloody, it was horrible. And ultimately this is when Pompey, the leader of Rome, intervenes into the local Judean politics and creates some structure some order between the two brothers and Antipater is given by Pompey a very powerful political position later Antipater sides with Julius Caesar against Pompey seeing that victory is reserved for Julius Caesar he knows how to endear himself to the right people at the right time and thus secures a very powerful political position for his son Hurdus. and when Antipater dies Hurdus ultimately who was also a brilliant man and a shrewd personality and knows how to endear himself to the Romans very well, gains tremendous power and for over 30 years becomes a powerful leader in Judea, a powerful king, crushing every attempt for revolt. Hurdas was born approximately in the year 74 before the common era. He died in the year 4 before the common era. He was a king from 37 before the common era till the year 4 before the common era. Which means he was a king for over 3 decades. During his reign, he built Eretz Yisrael. He built the land of Israel in an extraordinary way. He renovated the Beis Hamikdash, the second temple, to the extent that the Gemara, the Talmud says, whoever did not see Komish Leira, Binyan Hurdus Binyan he did not see the second Beis Hamikdash renovated by Hurdus. The historian Josephus Flavius Yosef Matisio, Yosef the describes the extravagance, the beauty. The dazzling, glittering beauty of the Nubay Samikdash, if you did not see that structure, you never saw what a beautiful structure is. The Chazal say, the Talmud says, Hurd is built all over the land of Israel and if today if you go to the land you will bump in to the great structures and mansions built by Herod the Great during his rule. He was beloved by the Romans, he was given tremendous power and had a lot of prosperity. But there was another side of Hurdus. He was brutal, he was ruthless, he was a tyrant. He murdered, he crushed, he tortured many. He murdered many of the Sanhedrin. Now, Hurdus married a Jewish woman a real full-fledged Jewish woman named Miriam. Miriam was a genuine Jewess from the Hashmanoi family. She was the granddaughter of Hyrcanus, The old kohen Gadol, who Hirdus' father served, Antipater, served Hyrcanus. He had a son, Hyrcanus had a son, Alexander. And Alexander's daughter was Miriam. Hurdus married Miriam. They had five children, three sons and two daughters. One of the sons died as a child. They had another two sons, Miriam and Hurdus. One of the sons was named Aristobulus, and the other son's name was Alexander. Hurdus, in his tremendous paranoia, And Hurdus was a very unpredictable person. There were days when he was charming and kind and graceful. And there were days when he was an absolute monster. And when he became a monster, you did not want to be in his proximity. Hurdus ended up murdering his brother-in-law, his wife's brother, Miriam's brother, who he was fearful can ultimately create a challenge for him, a a competition for him. So he had him drowned as a 17-year-old boy when he was once invited to swim in his pool in Yerichai. He suddenly drowned. This is Miriam's brother. He had his mother-in-law killed. He ultimately killed his wife Miriam. And he murdered both of his sons, Aristobulus and Alexander. This can allow us to understand why Augustus said once, or reportedly said, that you're luckier to be Hurdus' dog than to be Hurdus' child because his dog Herod treated well but his own wife and his own children he murdered Aristobulus Hurdus' son married a woman named Brennachy actually his first cousin she was a daughter of Herod's sister. Herod had a sister, Shlomit. And Herod's son, Aristobulus, married Shlomit's daughter. One of their children was a boy named Agrippus, or Agrippa. Young Agrippus was three years old when he was orphaned from his father, who was murdered by his grandfather, who became paranoid that his own children want to destroy him and overtake him and defeat him and assassinate him so he had his children killed so young Griffiths is now orphaned from his father murdered by his grandfather Herod and his mother convinced Herod, convinced her father-in-law that it would be better for the family to travel to Rome and to be educated in Rome and with Herod's consent Young Agrippus and the family with the mother moved to Rome and that's where Agrippus was raised and educated. Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, liked young Agrippa. And he grew up in the Roman Empire and befriended many people who in later years would hold very powerful positions in the Roman Empire. Now, Agrippa had a very, very interesting, colorful, diversified life. He grew up in Rome, he got into trouble, he escaped, he came back, he escaped. At the end, after many years, he ends up in Rome. And when he, one day, is overheard by a bodyguard of Tiberius that he wishes the old man Tiberius dies already, he is imprisoned, he is incarcerated. But Tiberius does die soon. And the new emperor of Rome becomes Caligula. Caligula was an old friend of Agrippa in the old days. They grew up together. Caligula not only liberates Agrippus, Agrippa, from prison, but he also gives him a prominent leadership position in Judea. So now Agrippus comes back to Eretz to the land of Israel, where he becomes a king in Yehuda, a king in Judea. Caligula became the Emperor in the year 37 after the common era for the first two years according to historians his reign still had moments of grace but after two years he apparently became completely insane his insanity took him over the man decided that he wants to appoint his horse to the Roman Senate he would dine with his horse as one of the guests At some point, Caligula decided that he was a god. And he commanded that his divine statue be erected in every synagogue in Rome and in every temple throughout the Roman Empire. This is where Agrippa was instrumental because of his friendship with Caligula. Caligula demanded that in the in Hamigdash, in Jerusalem, a statue of him as a god should be erected. The Jews refused... Here there was an opportunity for a bloody massacre of the Jews because Caligula had no no problem, no qualms in murdering upon murdering. Endless amounts of people. I mean, the amounts of people Caligula murdered in Rome was extraordinary, including his own closest supporters. And it was Agrippus, who was in Rome at the time, who somehow convinced Caligula that he should back off. And the Hamikdash was speared from housing a literal idolatrous pagan idol in the house of God, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Caligula was murdered in the year 41 after the common era. He was a king, he was an emperor for four years, 37 to 41, and he was murdered. He was stabbed around 30 times by his closest people, and he was succeeded by Claudius. Claudius, who was a good friend of Agrippa, expands now the authority and the rights of Agrippa in Judea. Agrippus now becomes a very successful and popular king in the Holy Land. He is in charge over the Besamikdash. He is in charge over very large provinces. He is beloved by Claudius and by the Romans, and he does a great job. But here was the great unique... Achievement of Agrippa the King although he was a Roman although in many ways he was a Hellenist he grew up in Rome he was educated in Rome he was part and parcel of Roman culture nonetheless he had a tremendous respect for Torah and a tremendous respect for Halacha and for Judaism and for the Sanhedrin for the Jewish Supreme Court and for the Chachamim for the Rabbis and for the Seisers he helped them he assisted them He was humble in their presence and therefore his era, relatively speaking, is considered a golden era of serenity, of tranquility, of prosperity in Judea and the last one of such a nature during the last temple. And after so many years of terror and of bloodshed and of inner and outer conflict, the reign of Agrippus was unique for the Jewish people in the land of Israel at the time to give a few examples of Agriphus and his relationship to Judaism. Open up source number two. The Mishnah in Bikurim. The Mishnah Tractate Bikurim, chapter 3, Peri Gimel, Mishnah Dalit. The Mishnah describes how these farmers of Israel would bring Bikurim. Bikurim was the first ripe fruits. If you owned an orchard or a field or a farm in the land of Israel, when your fruits would become ripe, you filled up a basket with fruits and you brought it, Two Yerushalayim to the Beis Hamikdash, and he gave it as a gift to the priest. <laughs> the Mishnah says, source number two: the flute played before them. Until the farmers come to the mountaintop, when they came to the mountaintop, <laughs> even Agrippa the king takes the basket of fruits and places it on his shoulder. And enters into the courtyard where he would ultimately deliver it to the priest, to the kayan, as a gift. What's afilu agrifas A king carries his own basket of fruits. A king even feels that he should bring bikurim. He should take a basket of fruits and come to the Beis HaMikdash and prostrate himself and give it to the gift to the kayan. Send it with an agent, send it with an emissary. Even if you're going to go yourself, let your servant carry your basket. But Agriphus HaMelech did not do that. Agriphus HaMelech understood that it's a schus, it's a mitzvah, it's a respect for him to fulfill a mitzvah of God. And he himself would take the basket of fruits, place it on his shoulder and enter into the temple courtyard. Next example. Source number three, open up your curriculum. The Talmud tells us a fascinating story. He says, Agrifas HaMelech, the king with his entourage, was once passing on a road, on a highway, a particular path, but there was a bride who was heading towards her wedding. And Agriphus HaMelech, instead of taking the right of way as the king and allowing the bride to wait, he left, he let the kala go first, and the sages praised him. Now this story is also brought a mesectik Suba's daf yitzayin amid aleph, but a mesectik simchiz is an addition. Omru loy mara So they asked him, "Why? You're the king." Ommar lahem he told them, "Ani noy kisri bechol yoyim vezois I wear my crown every single day. Let her wear her crown for one hour. This is her day." It's her wedding a day. I am a king today, I will be a king tomorrow, after tomorrow, next week. This is her day. Let her wear the crown. Let her be the queen. Let her get the right of way. Let her know that the king Agrifus gave her the right of way. And then there's that lovely story in source number four in your curriculum in Medrash Rabbah Vayikra. Gimel Hei. Parsha Gimel Piskei hey, five. The Medrash says there, Rabbi and Rabbi and explains. The Torah instructs us in Parashas Vayikra that when a poor man brings his bird or her bird as an offering, the entire bird should be offered and burnt on the altar going up as an offering to God. And Rabbi Yochanan says, every person when you smell the odor of wings, it's a horrible smell. Why not first pluck the wings, remove the wings? It creates a horrible smell when you burn wings. And what does the Rabbi Yochanan answer that the Torah is making a statement? There's a poor man here. The poor man can't afford an animal. He affords a little bird. If you take over the wings, it's going to be a little offering. The Torah wants that the shalani. the altar should be beautified with a large offering of the poor man. And then the Medrash tells the following story. Agrifa HaMelech, the second paragraph. Agrifa Samelech Bikesh LaHakriv B'Yoy Machad Elif oilus. Agrippa the king wanted to offer one day a thousand carbon A carbon is an offering which is completely consumed on the altar. No part of it goes to the koanim, to the one who brings it. The entire sacrifice is consumed and the altar flames going up to God. He decided one day he wants to bring a thousand oilas, a thousand offerings to God. Shalach wa amalakain al yakri ayayim He sent a message to the high priest, don't let anybody offer an offering today besides me. What happens? A poor man, a poor man comes and he has two turtle doves to offer. Two turtle doves, in contrast with Agrippa's a thousand oilas. Now you have to understand what that means. The Jewish people used to offer every morning an oila, a sheep in the morning and a sheep in the afternoon. 365 days a year, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. So it's twice 365. Agrippin one day wants to offer what the Jewish people offer in a year and a half. Approximately a year and a half. And a poor man comes that day with two turtle doves. And he asks the priest, please sacrifice them. Please offer these birds. And the priest says, the king told me I can't. And what does the poor man tell him? The line begins, My master, the high priest, I capture four birds a day. I offer two to God, and I feed myself and my family from the other two. If you don't offer the two, you are destroying my source of livelihood, my source of sustenance. Because this poor man is convinced, why does he capture four birds a day? Because two he offers to God, and two he can keep for himself. If you don't offer these two to God, you're severing my relationship. You're severing my source of sustenance. So the Kayan Gadol, the Kayan takes the birds of the poor man and he offers them. He betrays the instructions of the king. Nireloi Agrippa has a dream, and the dream shows him, karben shall kadmach. In the dream, he sees a vision, a message. The offering of the poor man was superior to your offering. Two turtle doves versus a thousand oilers, a thousand carbon So what happens? <laughs> we're still in source number four, the last paragraph of the Madrash, he sends a message to the high priest, that I not send you an instruction, nobody should offer any carbon on this day besides me, and he responds, <laughs> he tells him the story, a poor man came with two turtle doves, he asked me to sacrifice them, I told him about your command, he said you're going to destroy my sustenance, in the last line should have I not offered his offerings what does Agriphus tell him all that you did was nice it was proper it was appropriate this gives us an understanding of Agriphus in the ancient days imagine a king sends you an instruction you do not accept an offering on this day this is my day and the Kohen Gadol betrays an explicit commandment. Another king wouldn't even ask questions. The Kohen Godel would come out a head shorter. The man would be assassinated immediately. Agrippus listens. The dream which only told him that the other man's offering was superior to his could have outraged him and created such ire and anger that he would take it out even more on the Kohen Godel. And yet what does Agrippa say? you did well you behaved appropriately you were right for not listening to me this tells us something about Agrippa now Agrippa unfortunately died a very young man he was born in the year 10 after the common era his father Aristobulus, who's murdered by his grandfather Herod, he was born in the year ten. He was born in the year ten before the ten before the common era and he died in the year 44 Claudius expanded his his rulership in the year 41 after Caligula was assassinated and in 44 Agrippa the first, Agrippa died it was sudden it was after Pesach, after Passover He went to Caesarea, to Caesarea for games, and there he suddenly died. Whether it was from a sudden illness, or according to some historians, it was another conspiracy of Rome which became jealous and fearful of his success, expansion, prosperity, endearment, that remains a question. But Agrippa died. He died in 44 around 25 years before the destruction of the second base Amikdash, by the Romans. And after a few years his son Agrippus Agrippa II succeeds him. Agrippa II Second. Agrippus, Rashi calls him in the Neil Agrippus ben Agrippus Agrippa the son of Agrippa grew up in Rome under his father Agrippus who was a son of Aristobulus who was a son of Urdus who was a son of Antipater Agrippa the second was a teenager when his father died he was approximately 17 years old and the Romans did not feel that he was worthy to take over his father, but after a few years, they gave him some territory in Judea which he reigned, although not the same position and the same power and the same quantity of territory like his father. And in many ways, he continued the tradition of his father. He was not his father, obviously. In character as well, but in many ways, he continued the tradition with his fa- uh, the tradition of his father, including the relationship with the Jews and the relationship to Torah and It's just that in his day was the great revolt, the great rebellion against the Romans by the Jews in the year sixty-six after the Common Era. So Agrippa I died forty-four. A group of Jews, the Zealots, revolted against the Romans in sixty-six. 22 years later, and a few years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the Beis Amikdash, massacred untold numbers of Jews, and exiled Gollos Edomensud. The information we have about the two Agrippas is from the Jewish Roman historian. Josephus Josephus Flavius in his Roman name, Yosef ben Matisio, Yosefon as he's called in our sources. And according to Josephus, he, Agrippa too, tried very strongly to persuade the Jews not to revolt against the Romans. But as we know, he was unsuccessful, because the group that believed in revolt succeeded and there was a major war between the jews and the romans until the romans cut down the conflict now the role of agrippa too in helping the jews or assisting the romans and betraying the jews is a very heated and discussion among various historians and including jewish historians the bottom line is he was very much against the revolt and he sided with the romans how much he sided is a question ultimately the Bessamiktosh is destroyed in the year 68 or 69 or 70 one of those years and this is during the time of Agrippa Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa Agrippa I this is the context which is vital to have in our minds if we are to appreciate the story here in the Mishnah in Mesechta Saytadath Dath Mamalaf now let's understand the story Agrippas Samerich is the king of Judea. He comes to Hakel. Hakel is that time once after every 7-year cycle the beginning of the 8th year Sukkot. The night following the first day of Sukkot when every Jew comes together men, women, children to listen to the Torah being read by the king. Agrippas is standing, he doesn't want to sit. He stands. To listen to the Torah. To the extent the Gemara asks in sight, A king doesn't have a right to forgo on his honor. To forgo his honor. How does he stand? And the Gemara answers, mitzvah shiny. It's for a mitzvah. If it's for a mitzvah, it's different. On the contrary, this only strengthens the honor of the king. Because the people see that this king is committed to God. This king has real ethical values. This king knows that he is not the only source of absolute power. There's a power above him. This only allows you to respect the king even more. There's what to respect. Agrippa stands and then he's reading the Torah while he's standing and he reaches that fateful verse which every king used to read during HaKel. And I should mention of course that this year Tovshin Samachtes 5,769 is a year of HaKel. So in the time of the Beis during Sukkos of this year, Tavshon Samachtes, the past Sukkos, the entire nation would gather to listen to these portions of the king. And then the king reaches that verse in Parshas Shayftim. And open up your next source, source number five, Parshas Shayftim, Perikid in Pasuk Tazwav. Agrippas is reading these words, Soim Tassim Alecha Melech, Hashem alecha Appoint for yourself a king which, whom God will choose you should appoint upon yourselves a king from amongst your brothers you cannot appoint upon yourself a non-Jew who is not your brother Agriphus begins weeping tears are streaming from his eyes he is the king. He's reading the Torah. It's hakel. The king is supposed to read the Torah. But who is the king? The king is Agrippa, A Roman king. He respects Torah. He loves Torah. He's doing the mitzvah. He starts crying. Think of the moment. What happens? So as we saw in source number one, the Jews respond and what do they say? Altissiari Agriphus, don't fear. No need to cry. Achinuat, Achinuat, you are our brother. Which Agriphus was it? Number one or number two? It could be Agriphus number one. During his reign there was a hakel year. It could be Agrippus number two. From Rashi, it seems it was Agrippa 2, not Agrippa 1. How do I know? Open up your next source, source number 6. Rashi cited Afmamalev Hamadalev. Rashi says, Agrippa Hamelech, Melech Yisrael Haya, Mizarish Al Hurdus. He was a Jewish king from the descendants of Herod. You see, Rashi gives us the history. He was from the descendants of Herod. We remember, there's Herod, marries Miriam, has a son Aristobulus. Aristobulus is killed. Aristobulus has a son Agrippus. Agrippus has a son Agrippus. This is the Agrippa, the king, in whose days the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Why is it necessary for Rashi to say this? We will see in a moment. This is a very important Rashi but this gives us the timeline if it's the Agrippas in whose days the Besamiktas was destroyed Agrippa I died in 44 after the common era the Besamiktas was destroyed 25 years later around 25 years later Agrippa II he was the king in whose days the Besamiktas was destroyed the second Besamiktas by the Romans by Vespasian Titus now it's interesting Rashi clearly says in this story here in Masechta Saita that his mother was Jewish. mi Yisrael. Rashi says, why did the rabbi say, why did the Jews say, Achinu you're our brother? Rashi claims that Agriphus' mother was Jewish. Not everybody agrees with Rashi. The Rambam is quoted in Enyakav, Yaakov. and Base, and believed that his mother was not Jewish. In other words, Agrippa was not Jewish, halachically speaking. According to Rashi, Agrippa was Jewish. What then was the problem? Why was Agrippa crying? Agrippa was crying because he came from a family of Avodim Knanim, Hordus was an Evet Knaini, Antipater was an Evet Knaini, Aristobulus, Agrippa, Agrippa, and therefore was inappropriate that he should serve as a king of Israel, but technically, legalistically, halachically, he was Jewish. Tois the Rambam and the in and Bava Basra, quoted in Enyakov, believe his mother was not Jewish. Rashi holds his mother was Jewish. It may be, we may suggest. I'm not sure, but it may be. This may be dependent whether you believe this was Agrippa the first or Agrippa the because Agrippa the first, who did he marry? You remember whom he married? He married Hurdus' sister's daughter. Hurdus had a daughter, sister, Shlomit. And his daughter, her daughter, Shlomit, married Aristobulus and his son was Agrippus. So his mother presumably wasn't Jewish because his mother, Agrippus' mother, Aristobulus' wife, was a niece of Hurdus her mother presumably had the same status like her brother Herod if Herod wasn't a Jew he was an evet Knaini so then presumably his sister also was not Jewish if so her daughter was also not Jewish Rashi however says that Agrippa's mother was Jewish so this would seem to be Agrippa too. perhaps Toisvis Rambam believe it was Agrippa I and indeed the mother was not Jewish. In any case, it was one of the two Agrippas, one of the two Agrippas, with whom this Hakel story occurs. According to Rashi, Agrippa II, according to others, Agrippa I. According to Rashi, his mother was Jewish, he was just an Eved, according to others, his mother was not Jewish, he was not Jewish, he could not be a king, and therefore he was crying. When you finish reading the Mishnah, what is the impression you get? My dear friends, you're moved by the sensitivity of Agrippa's HaMalik, you're moved by his fineness, by his subtlety, by his emotions. But what do you think of the Jewish response to him? He's crying... And Umrulai, they tell him, don't fear, you're our brother. We may view it as a positive thing, as a negative thing, but certainly not as such a significant moment at first glance. In Gemara, we see another picture. Open up your next source. Source number seven zagdege morris site dafma ma'alof mit tonem ismader ibn ossen we have learned in the name of ibn ossen ba'is or sha' niskhai vu soyne israel clear shekh that moment the enemies of israel became liable for destruction because they flattered agriffus Often the rabbis, when they say the enemies of Israel, they actually mean Israel. But when they're talking in negative context, their subtlety and their refinement did not allow them to say the Jews became liable for destruction. So they used a euphemism, the enemies of the Jews. But what they mean is the Jews. At that moment, Reb Nosson says the Jews, or as they say the enemies of the Jews, meaning the Jewish people became deserving of extermination, of destruction. Why? Because they flattered Agrippus. They flattered Agrippa. They said something untrue to him. They said, you're our brother, you're our brother. There's no reason for you to feel bad. There's no reason for you to feel despondent. You're our brother. They spewed forth to him falsehood. To flatter Him. Rabbi Nassim says, this is the day they became liable for destruction. The next source, source number 8, Yerushalmi. Talmud Yerushalmi, Saitan this Mishnah, Perikzayin, Allah Chazayin, Harbi Chalolim, Noflubo Yisaiyam, Shekhnifu Lodhi, Yerushalmi believes that many died that day that they flattered Him. Many fell that day that they flattered Him. Rashi says, they said, you're our brother. What's wrong? He was Jewish. His mother was Jewish. We said, Rashi said, his mother was Jewish. And Rashi says, but it was still inappropriate for him to be the king. It was a disgrace. Zilla Milsa was a disgrace for him to be the king. Taisvis <tosvist> argues on Rashi. Here in Mesechta Saita Daf Mamalaf. I quoted earlier another Taisvis of Abbas and Yavon. His dear Taisvis has a different perspective. But here in Saita, Taisvis argues on Rashi. What does he say? He says it can't be that for such a slight thing they would be punished so severely if he was really their brother, if he was really Jewish. And Teisvis answers here that even though his mother may have been Jewish, nonetheless it's forbidden for him to be a king because even if one parent is Jewish, even if the mother is Jewish, you can have other positions of power among the Jewish people. You're a Jew, but you can't be a king. Me means from amidst your brothers you have to be completely Jewish from every side. Right front and center father and mother, and therefore it was forbidden for him to be a Jew. And thus Taishwaz continues and open up your next source. Source number 9. Taishwaz cited a This was the flattery. You see, source number 9. Taishwaz cited a of Shemalach bezrayah shalaikhid in Agriphus ruled the Jews by force not according to the laws of Tyre and the Jews at that moment conceded to him and they confirmed his position true they couldn't, they couldn't protest he was ultimately a puppet of Rome. They didn't have the power, the legions, the authority to over, to dethrone him, to put up a Jewish king. True, Taisa says. They couldn't protest. But they could have remained quiet. When he was crying, feeling guilty, feeling horrible, they could have remained quiet. No, Taisa says. They went and they told him, Don't worry, you're our brother, you're our brother. Vizel Einer shachanufa Veira this is the punishment says for flattering somebody committing a sin you're flattering your friend because you're fearful of him you want to be on his good side you want to appease him so you make believe he's doing the right thing when he's really doing the wrong thing and you're completely insensitive to the authority of God who said it's wrong This person makes believe as though the supernal eye does not see. The eye of the human being, his friend, has tremendous control over him. He's scared not to flatter this person. I need to be on your good side, so I'm going to flatter you. I'm going to make believe it's all good. So I'm going to sell my priorities and my values, making believe that God's eye doesn't see anything. And this, Toysvah says, was the great problem and tragedy when the Jews turned to Agriphus and said, no worries, Achinu you're our brother, you're our brother. Now let's reflect upon this for a few moments. And the following idea is based on explanations in various sources concerning different events in Jewish history. And also a bit based on an explanation of the Maharal Chidush Goddess here in Seita. One of the points we're going to say: Why, do, according to Reb Nassim, do the Jews become liable for destruction? First of all, it gives us a perspective and an understanding of what Rashi is saying. Why does Rashi say Agrippas is the king in whose days the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed? He may not only giving he may not only be giving us historical reference. It was Agrippa too. He may also be telling us because the Gemara says that day the Jews became deserving of destruction. So Rashi says, Indeed, soon afterwards, the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. What was the ultimate, final cause of it? This flattery of Agrippa. This may be the Khejbin, this may be the calculation of Rashi. The truth is that God runs the world. God orchestrates every event in the world. Hashem wanted, however, that we should live and utilize the vehicles and instruments of nature, including diplomacy, including relationships, including the systems of politics, economy, medicine, and so science, in order to live our lives. But knowing that nature is a vehicle of God, nature is an instrument of Hashem, nature is a glove, but there is the divine hand in the glove. Especially the Jewish people, the ambassadors of God to this world, whose history was filled and is filled with trials and tribulations, great moments and very difficult moments. Jews throughout history were like this, like the Medrish says, like the sheep surrounded by 70 wolves, and only the shepherd, the great shepherd, protects the sheep not to be exterminated, exterminated and annihilated through the 70 wolves. And therefore, For humanity and for the Jewish people they cannot achieve success and fulfillment and longevity by detaching themselves from God who is the source of all of their protection and their existence and their survival throughout history. This was a fateful moment then in Jewish history. Agriphus is reading the Torah. It's a great moment, Hakel, he's a great king. But it's also a tragic moment because He's not supposed to be the king. He's not allowed to be the king. God does not, this is a violation of the way God wanted it. Yes, it may be that they're not in control. But it's certainly not the perfect, beautiful situation. He starts crying. He feels it. He's a sensitive soul. Fart, he has Jewish genes in him. There's Jewish blood flowing in the veins of Agriffus. Something is there. There is still the genes of the Chashmanayim. Somewhere you have the gene of Yehuda HaMakabi. Somewhere you have the gene of Matisyo. Of the great Chashmanayim family. And he expresses it through his tears. And yet the Jews felt that here they have such a good king. Let's tell him something that's not true. Let's tell him, you're our brother. You're perfect. And they say it twice. Achinuata, Why twice? Zogde ben of Baghdad, Ben Why achinuata, achinuata? He says, you're worthy for the kingship and your children. Or another interpretation he gives, you're our brother as far as lineage, genetics, You're a Jew. And you're our brother as far as deeds, as far as character. They felt their success finally is here with this king. What do they have to do? They have to appease him. They have to make sure he's on their good side. They have to make sure they're on his good side. They have to make sure that he feels completely integrated with them and they look at him as a perfect king and at this moment they sold their soul because the Torah says you can't protest, don't protest but at this moment they forgot or they, choose to, they chose to forget that ultimately the only source of their security may be through Agrippas as God how can you sell out that source? and when? during Hakil what is HaKel? HaKel the Torah says bring together men, women and children to hear the Torah. Why? L'man Yishmu, L'man Yilmudu. They should listen and learn to fear God. at HaKel. When he's reading the Torah. And the whole objective of HaKel is to inculcate within the Jewish heart and have them relive. The moment of Sinai, like the Rambam says in Hilches Chagigah, to re-experience their unique relationship with Hashem, the ruler and the only ruler of the world, and add HaKel. They lost that spine, they lost that soul. Achino you're our brother, you're our brother. And this is the moment when the sheep naturally becomes vulnerable. Because if it detaches itself from the divine protection, there are always 70 wolves that are ready to devour it. This is then the meaning of Ravnostin. This is that moment of flattery when the Jewish people substituted their true source of protection, their true source of survival with a delusional source. Not that Griffiths wasn't a great king. Griffiths was a great king, but he is a vehicle. He is an instrument. He is not the ruler of the world. The ben Yahyada says another interesting thing. He says, if you look in the words of the Gemara, what does the Gemara say? The Gemara says that They flattered Agrifas. He could have said, We all know who it was. And the answer is, if Agriphas would have been a vicious person, a real rush, a real wicked person, many opinions in Gemara say that when you have to save your life actually all opinions say it when you have to save your life you're allowed to say falsehood you're allowed to flatter even if it's a lie because pikuach nefesh, saving a life the Torah itself says it overrides everything but this was Agriphos Agriphos was a good person Agriphos was a fine person You don't have to lie to Him. You don't have to flatter Him. And there are another two important points here. When somebody flatters other people, we know from a psychological point of view, you can't really survive. People who live to flatter and are defined by flattery they have to flatter this one and they have to flatter this one. They can't survive because they don't have an essence. They don't have a spine. They don't have a nucleus. It's true individually. When you're a flatterer, you say things to certain people which you don't mean, which are false, which are lies, just to gain their favor. You erode more than anybody else. You're trying to survive, but you destroy yourself because... You're not real. There's no you. This is true individually, it's true collectively as a people. The foundation of Jewish existence is what we call in Yiddish, Yiddish eshtolz, Jewish pride. And the moment they lost that inner pride coming from their own identity, their own faith, their own tradition, their own Torah, ultimately they failed. They failed. There's something even more about flattery and that is the person whose favor you're trying to acquire through flattery, ultimately you distance this person even more because when you're flattering a person, ultimately if he has any conscience and abyssal seichel, if he's clever, he gets disgusted by you because he he realizes there's nobody to respect here. This person is ready to sell his mother, his soul for flattery. You would think by flattering the king it would be better for the Jewish people. By flattering somebody else you gain favor but the truth is long term it works the other way around because deep down the person whom you're flattering even if in the beginning he likes it and he appreciates the honor and the flattery and so on and so forth deep down he becomes disgusted with you. Deep down he loses every iota of respect for you and this was often the story of the Jewish people. They thought they'll integrate and they'll become loved and accepted and embraced by false flattery and by disposing themselves of their true identity and their true tradition and their true faith and their true belief system. And ultimately they're seen in a much lower fashion than ever before. And this is the meaning in the continuation of the Gemara in Saita. Where the Gemara explains at length the consequences of flattery. With this approach, I think we can appreciate a lot of these insights in the Gemara far clearer and far better. But I want to conclude with a story I recently heard. A much later period in history but expresses the point quite well Franz Joseph King of Hungary Emperor of Austria the leader of the austro hungarian Empire he died in 1916 he was married to a woman named Elizabeth the marriage was not the best marriage as is known in uh, history once at an event where Franz Joseph and his wife were present was also the rabbi of Budapest, Reb Kapelreich. Kapelreich died in the 1920s. He was a student of the Ksaf Seifer, a son of the Ksam Seifer, very prominent rabbi and leader and activist. He stood strong to protect Yiddishkeit and Judaism and Allah and Jewish law in a difficult time. And he was at the event. And Elizabeth. The wife, the queen of France, Joseph, stretched out her hand to welcome Rabbi Reich. And he politely refused a handshake and he told her that according to Jewish law and according to Jewish tradition, it is inappropriate for a man to touch a woman whom he's not married to. People were stunned. People Will be a reaction, what will be a response? Such disgrace, such humiliation, such disrespect, A Gewalt, especially the Jews present, as usual. Elizabeth turns to Franz Joseph and she looks at him and she says, I envy Jewish women, Jewish wives who have husbands which behave in such a fashion. Have a good night.